This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Hello, this is the Beautiful Writers Group interview with best-selling author Gretchen Rubin. And you're in conversation with myself, Danielle Laporte and Linda Stevenson. Off the top, you can find Gretchen at GretchenRubin.com. Linda and I are always at TheBeautifulWritersGroup.com. You know that I live at DanielleLaporte.com. And Linda is always rocking it at BookMama.com. Gretchen, we always start with a blessing. And it goes like this. We're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now. And by brilliance, we mean light. And so it is. Hello, hello, Gretchen. Hello. I'm very happy to be talking to you. Oh, this is so much fun. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. I know you and Danielle have known each other for long quite time. a long time. And, yeah. and I'm sort of new to this party, not new to your work, but you know, just met you in person a couple of months ago at the beginning of your tour. Yeah. For better than before, and congratulations, it was an instant everything bestseller. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, everything, everything bestseller. Yes, that's very exciting. That's so major. Well, let me share a little bit about you with our listeners. Danielle and I are bringing you Gretchen Rubin because we love learning from her, period, point blank. I mean, boy, you know, as I just said, to have an instant bestseller, there's a lot to learn. Gretchen has had not one or two, but three blockbusters, all New York Times bestsellers. The Happiest Project and Happier at Home are the ones you may have already read if you haven't read this one. So this topic of happiness, Gretchen, is something you've helped millions and millions of readers attain. And now with Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives, you are answering the critical question, how can we make good habits and break bad ones? (laughs) Which I think all writers are sort of desperate to answer. (laughs) Um, And Gretchen is a rigorous researcher. That's one of the reasons we love her so much. And uses her own life as she's her own guinea pig in the breaking of and mastering habits. So I'll just close this little section with something your husband said, Gretchen, that I think is so funny. With your books about happiness, you were trying to answer the question, how do I become happier? And this habits book is, no, seriously, how do I become happier? (laughs) Yes. So that's that. Danielle, you want to start with a question? Really, Jamie needs to get in the branding business because that (laughs) says it all right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. We want to start with like the dark side. And our first (laughs) question is this. You can hear it two ways. What's your best mistake? Or what is your favorite mistake that you've made in terms of creativity and career? Uh, I think that's easy to answer. For me, that was going to law school. 
um, <laughs> because I went to law school and I had an amazing experience at law school. I met my husband, who you just quoted. I made tons of friends. I had an amazing education, which served me well as a writer. I got to be editor-in-chief of the law review there. I got to clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So okay. I had an amazing experience. But even... The whole time I had a feeling that it was kind of a digression. Like I had this feeling that I wasn't where I was supposed to be, but I didn't know where I was supposed to be. And the thing about law school is it's just like once you're on that train, you just know what you're supposed to do. You're like, do this? Okay, do this, do this. And it took me a long time to realize that what I really wanted to be was a writer. Now, in the end, I'm glad that I did it. It all worked out, and a lot of the things that I learned in law served me very well as a writer. But it was a mistake because I went for the wrong reasons, and I just did it because I didn't know what else to do with myself. It seemed like kind of a good default option. That is not the good way to make a major life choice. (laughs) What from law serves you in your career? Well, the thing about legal writing is that it's just relentlessly logical. You have to make a case. You have to answer every possible objection. You have to account for every possible exception. I remember with my first book, I was in a library and I was looking at one sentence and I remember I started going into my head, well, what if somebody said this? And I'm like, well, then I would say that. But then they would say this and then I would say that. And then they would say this and I would say that. And I went through it in my mind. Later, I realized for like 25 minutes, I just had this inner dialogue of argument. And of course, nobody cares about it at that level. So I didn't write any of it down. It was too much nuance. It's not interesting for a lay reader. But I had to assure myself that I could stand behind the statement that I had made. Now I don't even remember the statement, but I remember forcing myself to go through the exercise of really defending it. And with something like habits, I feel like when I was writing my habits book, when I would read what other people would write about habits, I would think, well, what you're saying is not wrong as long as I'm thinking about it in this way, but what do you do about this? What do you do about that? What do you do about this other thing? People would say, oh, well, habits change gradually. You know, we change them incrementally. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the habits that change overnight? What about that? You know, and they didn't have an answer for that. So I feel like my legal writing trained me to always be saying, but what's the exception? What's the objection? And forcing me to build that into my ideas. I bet your husband thinks that's really, really fun to be married to you when you um, do that with him. Well, he's just the same. So, yeah, and I met him in law school, so we're both trained at this. Oh, you've got to be kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Does that you mean you have really in. quick arguments or, or know, long, yeah. protracted arguments? Yeah, we don't argue that much. Um, <laughs> and what we do is pretty quick. Gretchen, when was your first I did it, I pulled it off moment with your writing? Maybe it's when I got an agent because, you know, I don't really come from the tradition of journalism, of like freelancing or writing for newspapers or magazines. So I think for a lot of people, that's like a big clip that they got. And I have that sort of in a haphazard way. But for me, the idea that came from the idea, like once I had an agent, I felt like I was a professional writer because somebody had put money in the form of time and energy. Nobody had paid me anything, but they were like, I'm backing you. You know, like, my time is my money, and I'm giving you my time because I think that we're going to make money together. I believe in you. I believe in your book. And so even before I actually had sold my book, I felt like that made me into a kind of professional writer rather than just somebody who was a former lawyer who was writing a book on the side. You know, our listeners love agent stories. Can you tell us how you met your agent, how that happened? You know, I've had the same agent the whole time, so it's kind of lost in the seeds of time a little bit, but 
I had gone in to talk to another agent at her, where she was then, which is not where she is now. My agent is Christy Fletcher. She has her own agency now. She split off and started her own agency years ago. And I got to the main agency relationship through like a connection, a friend of a friend, which is I'm sure many people have talked to your listeners. It's much easier to get to an agent if you have some kind of personal connection to them, however attenuated that might be. And so I got there, and then it's sort of like one thing or another, we sort of ended up together. She was pretty early in her career, and of course, I was just starting out. And it was just, it's a total love connection. She's been just this huge influence on everything that I've done. So I feel really fortunate to have somebody who really has a lot of insight, not only to the books that I'm writing and editing and things like that, but also just in a larger sense of like social media. And she was the one who said, I think you would like to have a blog. You should think about it. You know, that was her. And she was clearly right. So, yeah, that's how I hooked up with my agent. And as a quickie aside, did you send her a proposal initially, a query letter, a whole manuscript? What did that look like? Well, I didn't know what to do. So I literally bought a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. So what I was submitting at that point was a query letter, the first two chapters, a table of contents, a pitch letter, not the whole manuscript, but a very full table of contents and outline. Nice. Yeah. I remember a conversation we had. Uh, I think it was one of the first times I met you, Gretchen, in person. And at first I was impressed. I was just like, wow, Gretchen is a total New Yorker. She's wearing complete black. She's wearing running shoes. She has a backpack. She walked here. <laughs> like, this is New York. <laughs> wow. agents. And somebody, and thankfully I've forgotten her name, but somebody was whinging about resenting having to pay their agent the cut, you know, the percentage yeah. that the agent gets. And you were like, I hope my agent makes a ton of dough and is driving a Mercedes and wearing a great watch because it means that I'd be, like, rolling in it. And I was like, yeah, you want to wish – you have to be resentment-free in that relationship and only be wishing the best for your agent because you are in it together. That is the fact. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as the trends in publishing change, for many people, their relationship with their agent is more stable than their relationship with an editor because those jobs just change so much more quickly. And so, like, even in midstream, that can happen to you. It happened to me. But your agent, you know, you have that feeling of kind of a long-term relationship and somebody who's helping you look down the road to think about what makes sense, not just what we can do to maximize things right now, but what's the big picture look like. So when it works well, it can be so powerful. When do you start planning your next book? So, you know, I know how close happiness at home and the overlap better than before, but where are you now in your creative cycle? Like, you working on the next one? You're just going to coast for a while, Gretchen? I don't think you're a coaster, but... Uh, well, you know, I literally get hit, like, by lightning bolt when I get an idea for a book. I mean, to the point where I can tell you exactly where I was and what the light was like. And so I just kind of have to wait for that and trust that it will happen again. In Better Than Before, I have a framework called the Four Tendencies Framework where I divide all of humanity into four categories <laughs> in ways that have a lot of consequences for their habits and other aspects of their personality. And there has been so much intense interest in this. Like, if I speak about habits and I mention the four tendencies, all the questions in the question period are about the four tendencies. And I've had all these very specific emails from people, like, saying, I want you to tell me, like, in this very particular situation, what do you think I should do? So I haven't had my next big idea, but I'm going to write a much more comprehensive treatment of tendencies that go into a lot greater detail than I could do in a book that had to handle all 21 strategies of habit change. That was just one. So there's a limit to what I could say, but in this, I'm going to go much more deeply into that because I've done a ton of thinking and talking to people about it. 
So I have a lot to say, but it's not my next big idea, but it will allow me to go much more deeply into that subject. Oh, that's cool. So you're not a deep idea. Right, mm. right. Meaning going deep instead of, yeah, the big, right. big one. Okay, can you talk to us about your creative rhythm? So mm. you sit down every day. Do you have set hours? How do you write? I get up at 6 a.m. and I do an hour, and like against the conventional wisdom, which is that, especially for a morning person like me, your morning is your most creative and energetic time. I cannot settle down to do anything until I've gone through my email and my social media. So I spend an hour before <laughs> my family wakes up, answering email and going through all my social media. You know, so I do that for an hour. Then I get up, get my family up, make breakfast, take my daughter to school. We just walk to school, then come back. And then I'll either go to the gym or come back. And if I'm doing original writing, I try to figure out like three hours where I can do original writing sometime in the day. And it depends because if I'm having lunch with someone or I have a meeting or I have a phone call, it kind of has to be at a different time of the day. When I'm in my home office, I have three monitors and I'm totally connected. And when I'm trying to do original writing, I often will go to this little library that's just a block from my apartment and work there because there I never connect to the Internet. And so it's much easier for me to stay very focused on what I'm writing. And then throughout the day, usually I have a blog post to write. And then, you know, if I'm having to plan a talk or I'm doing, you know, oh, and I have a new podcast. This is my new, my latest <laughs> thing is I have a podcast with my sister called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which has been tremendously fun. But that's been another thing that has to be worked into the day. Like, what are we going to do? You know, when are we going to talk about, when are we going to record it? That's a whole other thing that has to be fit in. And all those pieces sort of float around. And your podcast is really successful. It's ranked one of the top podcasts, correct? Yeah, no, it's really exciting. Yeah, no, We've been thrilled. Yeah, I mean, we had no idea what to expect. Because I said to my sister, I'm like, I don't know. I would love for you to do this with me, but there is, (laughs) I don't know how this is all going to go down. So we're just thrilled. And we're having so much fun doing it. Oh, my gosh, it's so much fun. Okay, so Danielle and I often have deadlines. All Mm -hmm. of our clients have deadlines. Everyone in Beautiful Writers Group has deadlines, self-imposed or, you know, from an editor or from a publisher. So what are the key habits one Mm. needs for... nailing writing deadlines. Okay. So one of the things about deadlines that I noticed when I started really looking at this, because managing deadlines and sort of the opposite, managing procrastination, are certainly huge (laughs) issues that come up with habits. No surprise. So here's one thing about deadlines, is that there are marathoners and sprinters. And I think a lot of times people sort of try to deny their nature. So a marathoner, and I'm a marathoner myself, is somebody who likes to start well in advance and have plenty of time, work steadily, and often they don't even like to be up against the deadline. So maybe they want to have a little bit of margin at the end, but they like to do a little bit over time. And they feel like that's what ignites their creativity. That's how they get ideas is ruminating it over time, and that's how they work steadily. Sprinters, by contrast, are people who really prefer to work up against the deadline. They like the adrenaline of the deadline. They feel like that's when their ideas come together. That's what ignites their creativity. That's when they're most productive. And if they start too early, they can kind of burn out or lose interest, or they feel like they're just really inefficient, that they don't use their time wisely because they're like, wow, it's not due for two weeks. So they kind of you know, <laughs> mess around and sort of fitfully do it, but then they really only start truly working on it right up against the deadline. So it's like, well, why should I do all this stuff in advance? Now, you get conflict when you have these two kinds of people working together because the marathoner thinks that the sprinter is being totally irresponsible, and the sprinter thinks the marathoner is crazy for starting a project that's not due for a month now. 
<laughs> but the key thing is that sprinters are not the same thing as procrastinators. And they can look alike from the outside because they're both working up against a deadline. But you know the difference between procrastinators and sprinters because sprinters like working that way. They will prefer to work that way, and they do their best work that way. And when you ask them later, is that what you wish you've done? They say, absolutely. That's how I do my best work. Like this friend of mine who said, when I have to give a speech, I get my ideas when they're micing me up backstage and the people are in the seats, but it <laughs> oh makes my, my staff crazy because I will never talk about it until it's like happening right then. So, But that's how she likes to work. So she's a sprinter, but procrastinators often bitterly regret it. And they think to themselves, I could have done a much better job if only I had started earlier. And so the question of are you a marathon or sprinter or procrastinator really has to do with how do you do your best work realistically. Now, sometimes with creative people, they think that, like my sister, who's a television writer, worked, a showrunner is like the boss of the TV writers. And she had somebody who was a sprinter, and so he believed that that's how you got people's best work. So he would artificially engineer situations in order to get people pressed up against a deadline. But if you're a marathoner, you don't work best like that. So you have to think about different people's work styles. If your editor has one work style and you have another work style, that can cause conflict. You have to talk it out and talk about... I mean, I had a friend who was writing a memoir, and she had a year to write it, and I was like, man, that's not that long. And she's like, oh, I'm not going to start it for another four months. I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> like, no, that's how I like to work, intense. Go deeply into it, work many hours a day. So she knew herself. So it's really important to know yourself, and then you can figure out, well, how can I foresee what kind of issues might arise? If I'm a sprinter, I better not, you know, be planning to have a baby right there at the end because uh, that might take more time than I think to have a baby. Or, you know, what happens if I get sick? Do I have any leeway at all? Or is it a true deadline that's going to be catastrophic if something would happen at the end and I couldn't make it? Or do I have a little wiggle room? So it's like that. And then if you're a procrastinator, you have to work on your procrastination, and that's a whole other subject. Danielle, you're a sprinter, aren't you? No, I am a marathoner. You think so? Oh, absolutely. And if I worked for your sisters, the guy who was on a team who created these like false deadlines, I would yes. be furious. I'd be like, this isn't a real deadline. You are messing with me. It's like me. a reality show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I like to like, you know, get my ideas while I drive. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. here, this is the clearest indication that I'm a marathoner. In my Evernote notebook, yeah. where I keep all of my blog drafts, I have 341 files. Mm-hmm. And that's 341, you know, not even half-baked, not even quarter-baked ideas, but, yeah, I like to, I'm a stewer. And then, bam. But, but, but Linda, Linda, why did you think that Daniel well, was it's interesting. a sprinter? Well, first of all, I should say I have three planets in Gemini, so I see all sides of all things. And so I'm sitting here completely jacked up because I see, you know, I've done six books in eight weeks when I was a ghostwriter or a co-author for other people. You know, eight weeks to deliver, another four weeks to polish, so 12 weeks from start to finish. That's the Olympics. That is the writing Olympics. And that was sprinting, and I want to say that I hated it, but I was totally juiced the entire time, so I didn't hate it. I just hate the idea of it now looking back. Mm. But I'm also a marathoner in that my Evernote file is almost that large. And, you know, I've been working on a memoir on and off for 10 years. But I thought that about Dee because you're able to do so many projects. And it looks to us, it looks like you're quick about it. But in actuality, I do know now that I think twice, I do know that you work on these things for a long time in the background. They're cooking, they're at different stages of evolution. You have people doing different things at different times. But Danielle, you look like a sprinter, I would say. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, bottom line, I'm just crazy productive. I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Okay. I want to go back to like regrets and stuff. This is like the offset of the regrets. Gretchen, best advice that you were ever given, just like that diamond that somebody dropped in oh. your career path for you. I've had a lot of people give me good advice. Several pieces of great advice came from a job that I got. I had one legal job after I clerked before I became a writer, kind of in the limbo period. And it was a very stressful job. It was a very high-level job, and I was managing people for the first time. And my father said to me, if you take the blame when you deserve it, people will give you responsibility. And I have found that to be absolutely true, that a lot of times people feel like they will be weakened if they admit that they made a mistake, but that, in fact ownership of a mistake will make people feel that you are able to handle responsibility. And so that was really important. But then also when I took the job, I had this very stern boss, this woman who almost never smiled, but was terrific. And I said to her, I'm really worried about whether I can handle this job. And she said to me, be polite and be fair and you'll be fine. And I think of that a lot because being polite and being fair gets you very far in this world. And then Randall Gerald said, read at whim. So I'm always reminding myself when I feel like, oh, I have to get all this reading done. I'm like, <laughs> I should just read what I feel like reading because you never know. Like, right? read at whim. Okay, so as the author of The Happiness Project, I have a question about what brings you happiness, and it comes from this viewpoint. So I read Way of the Peaceful Warrior in college. My favorite line or saying in the book was that discipline equals excellence and excellence brings freedom. Uh, well, so for me, I always felt that freedom was the key to happiness. So for me, it was discipline equals excellence, excellence brings freedom, and freedom is ultimately happiness. What is happiness to you? Wait, can I answer a different question? Please. I would love to engage on that thesis. Go. Okay. So, okay, so this goes directly to the heart of the four tendencies framework that I mentioned earlier. And there's a quiz on my site if people want to take it, GretchenRubin.com. You can take a quiz if you want to find out what your four tendencies are. But the four tendencies are upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And it has to do with how you respond to the idea of an expectation. This is a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I promise it's highly relevant to what you said, <laughs> Yeah. which is a super important thing to think about, about creativity and productivity. So upholders readily respond to outer and inner expectations alike. So they meet a work deadline, outer expectation. They keep a New Year's resolution, inner expectation, without much fuss. They don't need a lot of supervision, but their expectations for themselves are just as important as the expectations that others have for them. Next, questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They won't do anything if they think it's unfair or arbitrary or irrational or inefficient. <laughs> they want to know, why should I do this? But once they're convinced, they'll do it. So they make everything an inner expectation. Obligers meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So they meet a work deadline, but they can't keep a New Year's resolution. So I had a friend who said, why can't I run? When I was in high school, I was on the track team. No problem. But now I can't go running. Well, when she had a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble going for a run, but now she can't keep her own inner expectation. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to act from a place of choice and freedom and authenticity at all times. And if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to do the opposite. So the idea, discipline brings freedom, that is the motto of the upholder. I say that as an upholder. Oh, that's discipline hilarious. Discipline brings freedom is, and if you look at all the people who write books, a lot of them are upholders because we're like, discipline brings freedom. But I was right. talking to a person who was a rebel, and she said, that statement doesn't make sense, <laughs> because freedom means no rules. 
Oh. But that's just as legitimate a way to see the world. Sure. It's not that there's sure. a right way or a wrong way. It's just that people really come to these things with a very different perspective. And wow. so I think when you talk about something like discipline, if you said a rebel, would you keep a New Year's resolution? They'd say, I would never chain myself by committing to something like that. I want to choose what I want to do. Maybe I'll want to do this today. Maybe I won't. I'm not going to commit to it in advance. It's so funny, Gretchen, that you say that because when I met you and I heard your talk, I thought, oh, I think I'm like Gretchen. I think I'm an upholder. And I turned to my sister. I said, do you think I'm an upholder? And she said, oh, definitely. And definitely. Do you uh, think so? <laughs> well, I co-authored The Compound Effect with Darren Hardy. I shouldn't say co-author that. Anyway, I wrote it with him. And it was all about habits. And for me, habits are what make me happy. Yes. When I don't adhere to my habits, I'm not as happy. It's just that well, simple. Well, the quote that blew my mind in my 30s that sticks with me, that is the clearest indicator that I'm a rebel, (laughs) is from Krishnamurti, who said, discipline numbs the mind. And I was like, you're kidding. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm writing that down. I mean, discipline numbs the mind, deluding Krishnamurti. Okay, yeah. that's hilarious. I knew you were a rebel, Danielle, but I didn't want to say it because I got the other one wrong. I'm so glad. Um, the thing that's been fascinating to me as I've talked to people about the four tendencies, and this is why I want to write the other follow-up book about it, is that it's such a profound way of seeing the world. It's hard to grasp the idea that people see the world so differently from yeah. you. And I think once you just understand, okay, let's say I'm an editor, and I'm like, okay, Danielle's a rebel. How am I going to help her do what she wants, which is that she wants her book to come out on time, And maybe she wants that so badly that it's not a problem for her to do it. But what if there are issues related to it? How can I say the things that are not going to make her want to push back to me? How can I be helpful? Or if you're a rebel yourself, like a friend of mine who's a rebel who wanted to write a book, I was asking him if he was going to get a book contract, and he said, no, because I'm a rebel. He knew all about it. He's like, and the minute I have a book contract, it's like someone's expecting it from me. It's like it's a job that I have to do for them. And they're paying me money, and I have to do it. And then I won't do it because I want to do it because I want to do it. I'm writing this book on my own, and then once I'm done, then I'll try to sell it. But if I try to sell it early, I just know that I'm going to kick off my resistance to the fact that they're trying to tell me what to do. And I was like, well, what a brilliant well, you know, identity yourself. There's got to be rebels with self-sabotage wings, I would say. Because So I'm going to say I'm an enlightened rebel, yeah. <laughs> which also sounds yeah. like I'm a narcissist. But <laughs> it's like the best way for an editor to work with me is I just want the deadline. But yeah. don't tell me, I, I'm not going to deliver in sequence. Yes. Um, don't yes. tell me you want this part by then. Yes. When's the book due to go to the first edit, and then when's it going to press? That's all I want to yeah. know. And yep. don't call me, and I'll deliver on the deadline. Oh, don't call me and double-check the deadline, because I heard you the first time, right. and it'll be there. Yeah. No, and that's a really good way to manage rebels, is to say, you're the one who has the chops to do this. This is what success looks like. Over to you. And then turn away and let them do their thing. Because they usually love a challenge. They like to do things in their own way, though. So often if you try to micromanage them, then you interfere with them. And I've heard from so many rebels where they're like, I wrote my PhD thesis like 40 pages long, and I had these unconventional advisors, and they want to do it in their own way. But they want to do what they want to do. So they'll get there, but don't nag at them, or then they're going to start resisting you. But like an obliger has to have a deadline. They do better with supervision. If a person is an obliger, and by the way, that's the largest tendency. Rebel is the smallest tendency by far. Obliger, biggest tendency. Obligers need accountability. They need supervision. They need to know that someone's watching. They need external accountability. And if you don't provide that, say, okay, so I had another friend who was writing a memoir. I have all these writer friends who have had every challenge you can imagine. So she said to her editor, 
I can only work with a deadline. It's the opposite of what you were saying, where you would resent it if somebody gave you a fake deadline. She was like, please give me some fake deadlines. <laughs> give me a fake one. Convince me that they're real. Make me work steadily, because otherwise I'm going to write the whole book in three weeks right up against the deadline. And her editor was like, no, it's going to be amazing. I don't want to interfere with your creative process. You should just do whatever you want. He <laughs> that is my creative process. He yes. refused to give her deadlines. Although she said that's what she needed to be at her most creative and productive, he refused to do it. Ugh. And they were like, okay, the catalog copy came out. You've got a three weeks to write your book. So she did. She wrote a book in three weeks. She bitterly regretted it because she thought she could have done such a better job. And she knew that about herself. And I'm like, why didn't you hire a coach? Why didn't yeah. you form an accountability mm-hmm. group? Get your agent on the task. Get your agent on the task if your editor won't do it. Like, once you know that about yourself, if you're like, I can't stand accountability, don't let it happen. If you know you need accountability, figure out a way to put it into place. Because there's so many ways to build in external accountability once you realize that that's the key to allowing you to perform, to succeed, to move forward, to have that progress. Mm, love it. Hey, i got a question since this is an interview. Gretchen, how has success affected your psyche or your creative process? Like, these books are this juggernaut, especially with Better Than Before, like instantaneous, bam, bestseller, bestseller, bestseller. What does that do to your head? Well, the way that it's affected me most has been enormously helpful with my subjects because since I'm able to reach a lot of people through whether it's my blog or through Twitter or Facebook or now through the podcast or I have a monthly newsletter, all these kind of things, it's like if I write something, people respond to me, and so I feel like I have such a much richer understanding of my subject than I could possibly have if I were writing in a vacuum or even if I were like teaching in a university or something where I'm like dealing with a very specific kind of person, a limited number of sort of 21-year-olds or whatever. Because like when I started talking about the four tendencies, all these people started flooding me with examples. Or like one of the things that I learned about myself that I thought nobody else in the world really experienced was that for now I say there's abstainers and moderators and abstainers do better when they give something up altogether. They find it too hard to be moderate. So if you're an abstainer, it's like it's easier to have no chocolate than have some chocolate. And I thought this was very like idiosyncratic to me. But when I started writing about it, I was flooded with people being like, oh my gosh, this is exactly how I am. Or, you know, this totally explains why I succeed in some ways and fail in others. So I was able to understand like, oh, this is a real pattern in human nature. Or like, I kept hearing the same story from people. You know, I wanted the habit of exercise. So I trained for the marathon and I ran the marathon. It was amazing. Greatest experience (laughs) of my life. But I haven't run since. Yeah. Yeah. I did NaNoWriMo. I wrote a novel in a month. Fantastic. I thought, oh, this is great. I'm doing so much writing every single day. Haven't written a word since. (laughs) Why? That didn't make sense to me. I was like, that's the opposite of what I would have expected to find. But because all these people were telling me the same thing, I could be like, okay, I have to account for this. I have to understand what's going on. This is just not one person having a freaky experience. There's something going on here. There's some pattern of human nature. But I was only able to see it because I was able to be in contact with these large numbers of, you know, some people write to me who are in like, eighth grade, and then I have some people who are like 93 years old and from all over the world, you know, so it gives me this overview about the things that I'm writing about in a way I could never replicate, and so I just feel so fortunate to be able to have that resource. Wow. Wow. And you have the kind of brain that can organize that amount of incoming data because that's not easy. That could make somebody else just curl up into the fetal position. Well, you can't feel overwhelmed when you're like, oh my God, that's such a great example. That's such a great example. That's such a great example. What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, I have a giant document that's just like a bunch of loose notes that I'm like, I got to go back and read that 1,000 page document. What's in there now anyway? (laughs) Maybe that's what I should do to get my idea for my next book. 
Oh, my God, I've been doing that for the last couple of days. There's a part of my memoir that I haven't been able to get myself to write, and it's the Ooh. part about the bad boyfriend that led to the boyfriend log, this app that I have. And I just didn't want to go back there. I'm like, oh, I don't want to relive bad boyfriend. Yeah. Well, I found a thousand-page diary on my computer, and that was the original. I color-coded the days so I could make sense of it because some days were horrible, some were fantastic. and I couldn't make sense of it, color-coded it, which was how I figured out he was a bad boyfriend. Uh-huh. However, yesterday I was sitting here going through it, and oh my gosh, I was so glad I had it because there were so many great things I had forgotten. Not to trash him, that's not the point of the book, but just to right. show my process. But at a certain point, I think I read maybe 200 pages. It took me about five hours, and I went, yeah. enough, enough. I can't yeah. do it. It's too overwhelming. Yeah. I'm done, and I'm putting it away. It's too dense. It's too rich with too meaning. Much. kind of yeah. blows your brain. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have the kind of brain like you have oh, to make well. sense of all that data. Yeah, it's interesting. How fortunate that you have that. What a treasure trove. Yeah, and I can't wait to burn it <laughs> <laughs> when I'm done. Yeah. So let's do a multiple choice. This is always my favorite. This is my favorite. Uh, this is an intermission, but Gretchen? <laughs> yes. Pencil or pen? Pen. Leonard Cohen or Rumi? Leonard Cohen, I guess. <laughs> you could say neither. Neither. I thought maybe. Um, Emily Bronte or, or Jane Austen? Jane Austen. Silver or gold? Gold. Because I know you are a young adult, like aficionado. I mean, I could be totally making, like, the bad polar comparison, but J.K. Rowling or Madeline Engel? Oh, my gosh, I can't possibly choose. I love them both so much. Both. <laughs> oh, good. Both, both, both. That means I asked a good question. That was good. Okay, um, digital or paper? Oh, well, I love digital for writing because I have to type because my handwriting is so bad, but, like, I keep my calendar on paper, which seems very old school, so I've got to fit in both worlds. Mm, same thing. Like, I got to, you know, I have to write little stars and underlines and things no, like that in my planner. <laughs> you have to be able to look at it in a glance. Digital is not going to move the ball forward for me. That's not going to be more efficient. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you reading right now, Gretchen? Uh, what am I reading right now? I Speaking of young adult literature, I just read We Were Liars, which is the E. Lockhart book that came out last Ooh. year. That's a young adult book. I'm in three children's literature reading groups, and that's what one of my reading groups picked. And then my sister had told me that one of her favorite books from all time was James Michener's Hawaii, which I think I read when I was like 17 years old. But I'm like, man, if it's my sister's favorite book, I'm going to reread it. So I just started rereading Hawaii. They're just paddling in their canoes, so I just started it, but it's good so far. Mm, nice. Do you prefer okay, audiobooks or do you prefer paper? You know, I prefer paper. I prefer paper by far, but my younger daughter, who's now 10, is a huge listener to audiobooks. And I have to say, I don't think I would have ever even tried them because I'm so reading-centric. But listening to them with her, I realize there is a very great pleasure. And in a way, you enjoy a book in a different way when you hear it from audio. So I haven't done that much, but I'm very intrigued because I think it's a really interesting, different way to experience a book. I just ordered yours. I, ah. I ordered better than before today, yeah. the audio book. I already ah. have the paper. I've already read oh. that. But now I want to listen to it when I dog walk. Well, I like I, to listen to things over and over ah. and over yes. again until they just become part of me. Well, I read that. And it's funny because when I was reading, they have a pillow there. And you have to hold the pillow in front of your stomach to muffle stomach noises. 
And I have pretty loud stomach noises, which is very embarrassing when you're there. But they're like, man, we know this is nothing. You know, we've seen really loud stomach noises. So oh you just don't think of yourself walking around with stomach noises, but, that you know, they're prepared for it. <laughs> it's one of those things you learn about yourself along the way. I'm like, okay. But it is really fun and really kind of weird to read your book out loud. Oh, yeah. Danielle, you did it mm-hmm. with Desire Map, mm-hmm. right? I love it. Just I yeah. love being in the cave. Yeah. I mean, it just, like, feels so meditative. And, yeah, you get the huggy pillow. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, they'll throw a candle in. And, uh, yeah. I How do you it. handle the deep yeah. breaths? Do they take away the breaths in editing, or do you just have to not breathe loudly when you're reading? That's not such an issue. Did you have that issue, Danielle? No, but they, I mean, like every, they are on every word. If there's too much of a, like a pop or a puh or a growl or every word is edited. It's brilliant. It's not like this morning (laughs) I'm getting in the creative habit of recording my blog post. So because I still haven't sat down to figure out how to work GarageBand, I literally just hold my iPhone and record and make a voice memo, which means I have to get the whole post it has to be right, right in one crack. <laughs> uh, but I love it, yeah. And it's worth mentioning for everybody listening that it's not always a guarantee that the author gets the right or certainly will want to read their own book. Like, it's actually something. I remember my very yeah. first book contract, you know, how it was worded was, you know, the translation was, if we deem you fit, we will allow you to read your own material. And I was like... Is it going to be James Earl Jones, like doing Darth Vader Firestarter sessions, or is it going to be me? Because I think I would be a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. not a given, but you can always have it worked into your contract, yeah. All right, so last question. Gretchen, what's your song that must still be sung? What's the creativity that's in you that you just, it needs to be expressed? Sometime in my life, not for a while, but because I think I have to work up to it for another decade or so, I want to write a book called Symbols Beyond Words which is about there's a certain classification of things to me which clearly are about symbols beyond words, and I'm always looking for examples of symbols beyond words, like Flannery O'Connor, like 100% symbols beyond words. Um, Carl Jung, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Oh, my gosh. Like I recopied practically the whole book into my notebook because it's all symbols beyond words. So that's something that I dream about, and I think about how delicious it will be to write that book, but I think I'm not ready for it. But one day I will be ready, and I will love writing that book. Mm. Talk about like a full journey, you know, going from Churchill to like and Kennedy to (laughs) to symbols beyond words. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, Well, here are my highlights. I remember in your happiness doctrine, I forget exactly what you call it, but one of your tenets was be Gretchen. (laughs) And I was like, you are so Gretchen, you know, you just... You answer the different question because you're an engaged listener. You know, when I asked you about success, it's the classiest answer ever. It's all about enriching your resources for you. <laughs> like, it all goes back to the cause, to the creative cause. So, yeah, so beautiful. Hands together. Thank you, Gretchen. Well, thank you. It's so much fun to talk to you. I feel like we could talk all day long. You have such an amazing community that you've pulled together, and it's such an honor to have been invited to join the discussion. Oh, we're delighted. I love the idea that habits are the invisible architecture Mm. of our everyday life. Well spoken like a true upholder. I think you've (laughs) nailed it, and I'm so, so, so happy to have met you and now get touched by your work. Oh, well, thank you so much. All right. All right. Summer love, love. everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. 
To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on. Write on.